Girls like Rosie don't get into real trouble. At least that's what Kate thought before becoming obsessed with the mystery of what happened to the young girl found murdered in her quiet English village. Debbie Howell's debut novel has been compared to The Lovely Bones and Reconstructing Amelia. Uncover the secrets yourself and pick up a copy of The Bones of You on sale wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Hey, ear buddies. Are you going to San Diego Comic-Con? Me too. Why don't we do something together? I'll do a panel and you come and watch it. Um, I think I'll do a few. On Thursday the 9th at 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. in room 23, ABC, I'll be doing an official uh, Nerdist Comics panel. I hope you come there for it. We're going to get some cool people to talk to. Also on Thursday at 4.30 to 5.30 at the Horton Grand Theater, I'm doing a panel uh, about creative people who are or were comic book readers. And we've got some good people lined up that I can't tell you about yet. And then finally on Saturday, the 11th, at the Banff stage, which is an off-site outdoor thing, uh, I'm putting together a fun group to do a Nerdist Writers panel from 11 to 12, uh, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And that should be a lot of fun. Uh, I will give you all of the details, including appearing on a bunch of Thrilling Adventure Hour panels with some cool folks that you're going to want to check out uh, on facebook.com slash panel, or go to thrillingadventurehour.com or go to our Tumblr or our Twitter. Go to my Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Just find me, and then find me at San Diego. Deal? Deal. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded in New Zealand, in Wellington, at Neil Cross's house. So thanks to Neil for letting me come over and chat with him for, God, like two hours. It was incredibly fun, and I I just can't thank him enough. Uh, Thanks also to Chris Chibnall and uh, Josh Friedman, who helped put me in touch with Neil in the first place. You guys are wonderful. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the host and creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel, which you are currently listening to. I'm also a TV writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and currently for uh, the DreamWorks Netflix program Puss in Boots. Check it out. It's now available. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio that is now a podcast right here on the Nerdist Network every week. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more details. If you enjoy the Nerdist Writers Panel, please leave a review on iTunes and let us know who you want to see on this program by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds, and by liking this show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Nerdist Writers Panel. Now, here's a theme song, or an ad. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Um, And, and, you know, we started talking about this, but, you know, we're in this beautiful city, on this beautiful island, (laughs) this country. How are you getting away with this? (laughs) You know, you're continuing to make TV uh, for England and America uh, and make movies. And yet, you don't have to be there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's kind of, it's my dirty little secret. And it's... um, 
I'm very aware when, when people ask me about this mm-hmm. uh, I, I have a very inbuilt English dread of sounding smoke uh, listen it's, you're getting away with something <laughs> yeah. so you're going to sound smoke I wake up every morning fully aware that I'm getting away with something mm-hmm. but also you know, it is the case I once heard I think John August say this um, mm-hmm. in an interview it is the case that every working screenwriter in some way is an outlier yeah. There's there's no kind of one there's no one direction by which you become a Absolutely. working screenwriter, and mine is mine is just I, I, had I started writing for the screen when I lived in London mm-hmm. and then moved to New Zealand, I think it would have killed my career stone dead. Really? Um, but as it stands, I've only ever written for the screen since I moved here. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I thought you had gone... Well, the, but, uh, what was your writing background? Did you start as a novelist? I was a novelist, yeah. And I thought of myself primarily as a novelist until quite recently, until sort of... Until, until I guess, maybe less than two years ago, when I just thought, right. Um, writing novels is killing me. <laughs> uh, well, what, what is... Listen, I'm going to interrupt you a little bit. No, I warn you, because I want to kind of dig in on things. What is the difference to you uh, in, in the process? Not, not so much in the business, because obviously that's wildly different. Yeah. In the process of creating a story for a novel and for television or film. Um, I wish I had some better wisdom to impart, mm-hmm. but the truth is almost none. Um, really because what I enjoy about writing for the screen and writing novels is I enjoy I actively enjoy the act of writing mm-hmm. you know um, and there's a great there's a great cliche which says nobody likes writing everybody likes to have written I like writing I find you're it, one of the few yeah I find we've it, done 200 of these yeah and there are maybe a dozen uh, I, I just find it it's all I've ever done mm-hmm. uh, I started I started my first novel when I was seven no, uh, and it was. I, I lived in a, a, a very kind of unusual, unusual uh, childhood, mm-hmm. where I was brought up by a, a very colourful stepfather. Cross isn't my birth name; it was my stepfather's mm-hmm. name. And I was brought up by Mr. Cross. My my siblings are much older than me, and um, I was born into a very average, very working class white family in Bristol, in England. Mm-hmm. Um, much the younger of my siblings, but for various kind of soap opera reasons, my you know my mother was never kind of happy with my father, and you know I, uh, it was all quite complicated. But I, I spent much of my childhood being brought up in a in a sort of diseased Victorian tenement in in Edinburgh, being brought up by by Derek Cross, um, who was he introduced books to my life. Hmm. If, if you imagine a, a uh, a, a five foot two, chubby Alain Delon. He was a, a very short, swaggering, very handsome little man, a um, little puffed up bantam, you know. Great character. Um, and he, I'd been there for two or three days, and he turned up with a bag of books. He'd been to the local kind of secondhand bookstore and brought me a, a bag of children's classics. You know, Huck Finn mm-hmm. and, um, and kind of Little Women and, and The Count of Monte Cristo and so on and so forth. And, um, and he proceeded to read to me every night until I was ready to mm. read for myself. So in many ways, Derek Cross was the, the thing which introduced me to literature. But at, he was also... Um, he was a white South African white supremacist. Um, he was also a kind of... Uh, my mother was 
his fourth or fifth wife. He was he was somebody who shed skins. Mm-hmm. He, there was a kind of profound unhappiness about him, uh, a kind of an emptiness inside him. And what he would do was it, was that he would he would fall in love essentially with someone. Mm-hmm. And we've all experienced it, where, whereby the, the act of falling in love makes you, it reconciles you to yourself. You feel great about yourself. And I think he fixed himself by falling in love with people, by starting new relationships, by, sure. by, by becoming the person that they loved. And um, so I don't quite know how we got onto him. Uh, but he, uh, and he was obsessed with various religions. Hmm. So we became Mormons. In a, and, and he became bishop of the and at the time were there Mormons? there were there, the were, there were these very very and this is a very very working class part of Edinburgh yeah in, I mean everyone's seen Transpired so picture Transpired in the sure. um, I was the only functioning ethnic minority it was fully white the great ethnic divide was between Protestant and Catholic mm-hmm. uh Great tension there, but also, I mean, if you if you were English back then, it was it was a yeah. route to unpopular. So I was I was like the lead, work, you know, the world's least popular kid. <laughs> um, I was very booky and not very sporty, and yeah, and a bit weird. And I spent all my time with comic books, and and uh, and he and so you know these incredibly glamorous young American men in, in suits knock on your door and pay you attention, and you know, oh the very Americanness of the missionaries was, was enough to make them seem otherworldly and ethereal, and strangely, one of the, one of the missionaries who, um, who converted us became head of the church in New Zealand, and he wrote to me ten years or so ago, oh my God, uh, God, David Baxter, don't quite know how to, but um, at the time, Mormonism also was doctrinally racist, mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 um, to be other than white was to carry the mark of Cain. And there's two levels of priesthood, the Melchizedek and the Aaronic. Uh, the Aaronic priesthood you get when you're 12 or 13, and the Melchizedek, which is the full, full priesthood, the full service priesthood you can only get at 18 if you were white. Uh, it was, at, yeah, it was crazy. And it was at that time the, 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 um, the prophet, I feel so embarrassed using these phrases, <laughs> Spencer W. Kimball overturned this doctrine. But I think Derek Cross was attracted to the church sure. for, you know, for, yeah. But he became, he rose to the level of bishop in this new town. And, uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the odd facets of Mormonism is that you voluntarily pay a tithe of 10% mm-hmm. to the church, mm-hmm. um, which is administered by the bishop. So, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Derek Cross stole the money and ran off with a black woman. Because the only... Th- what? Yeah, the only thing he'd never tried was not being sure. a white supremacist. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think there's what a... What the hell? So it was around all of this stuff. When I was a little bit younger, when kind of lots of odd stuff going on, that was when I started writing my first novel. But if you're, you know, you're growing up in this environment, mm-hmm. you're seven to ten years old, like these are your formative years. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, you're a, you're a bookish kid, yeah. not, not into sports. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense that you would turn to this creative outlet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what were what were the stories you were attracted to? What were both as a reader and as a storyteller? I when I walked out of the cinema, having seen Star Wars, I cried because I wanted to have not seen it so that I could see it for the first time again. Oh, <laughs> love that! At eight years old, <laughs> and um, there was uh, the first book I ever bought myself was. Uh, Han Solo at Star's End 
which was a Star Wars spin-off novelization, yes, which I, I remember just, that. Yeah, I just adored it. <laughs> and, uh, and every every Wednesday, my mother would get her hair set, very seventies thing. Always got big science fiction hairdryers, <laughs> and she'd give me ten or twenty pence to go next door to Bobby's Bookshop, which was a second-hand bookstore mm-hmm. with a whole corner given over to cardboard boxes full of comic books, um, which they sell for one p. So I, I could I could go and I could buy sort of ten or twenty comic books a week. Um, to and, and what were what do you remember what these were like? What were your gateway comic books? I don't think gateway comic, but the ones the, the ones which really really more than caught my imagination, kind of informed my imagination, and I kept going back to again and again and again was Claremont mm-hmm. and Burns X Men, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly because I just loved Wolverine at the time. I just I was I was in love with Wolverine because <laughs> he was. It's difficult to remember now, but there had been nothing like him before. Yeah, you know nothing. It was it was a very kind of new. There were there were all kinds of. Um, I, I really loved Deathlock. He was a kind of prototypical RoboCop. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the story is is. Actionably similar to Robocop in, in, in many ways. Uh, and, you know, this, this, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, he's converted to a cyborg against his will. Uh, he's, there was a, an interesting thing whereby he had a, a computer in his head with which he disagreed. So was a, his, his interior dialogue was expressed between him and this, you know, um, all sorts of, always Marvel, not mm-hmm. through any, you know, particular. I just, I just, Alan Moore had a great. When Alan Moore talked about discovering Marvel, mm-hmm. he said, "You know, the, um, the Marvel characters added an entire new dimension uh, to comic book characters in that they had two dimensions." But <laughs> 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 uh, uh, and but for a young adult, there was I mean, oh, oh, Spider-Man is it? Spider-Man. Right? Like, um, all of these Marvel characters were so relatable. And, I'm still Spider-Man in the '70s is still my kind of favorite. Yeah, Spider-Man period. Yeah, uh, and. It, uh, w- there was like short run comics like Man Wolf, mm-hmm. which which was a very short run. Also, there was a um, not in the seventies, but in his very early eighties incarnation, a superhero that would be unfamiliar, I guess, to, to an American audience largely, was Alan Moore's early work on Captain Britain, mm-hmm. which was just extraordinary. I mean, extraordinary. How so? I've only read about it. I've never. Oh, it, read it's, it. it's absolutely. It's it's kind of. It's tapped into the same kind of English-British folk subconscious that Doctor Who is. Mm-hmm. And the, the, he, he turned... A, the, you know, the original Captain Britain was a very transparent Marvel UK attempt to create an indigenous homegrown brand. You know, and it was a bit cack. <laughs> um, I, I, I liked it. Yeah. You know, bad costume... <laughs> You know, and you know, Mer- Merlin had to be involved. You know, uh, it, it was it was essentially a kind of uh, uh, they, they went for that kind of in the same way that Nova was essentially a it, it was it was Spider Man with a space helmet. It was the same origin story. I loved Nova. I was very fond of Nova. <laughs> uh, but Captain Britain died on his ass because uh, I mean, it, much as I loved it, it wasn't very good. But uh, Alan Moore and Alan Davis brought it back in the early eighties. And it, it had a, a not not a kind of not a playful postmodernity about it, but but a, in, in the same way that Alan Moore, what Alan Moore did in the eighties was profoundly grounded in his genuine love of comic books, hmm. while recognizing their absurdity. Mm-hmm. I think in many ways, kind of Captain Britain was the first the first stab at that. Interesting. Yeah, there, there was a, a very short run, but they did a yeah. you know I, I go back and I read it now. 
every couple of months. That's great. Yeah. Well, that his uh, not to get off on the tangent, mm. but his early stuff before he got, I feel, so much in his own head, mm. so enthralled with you know taking apart the medium, oh, yeah. but rather the celebrating of the medium was really. I was, I was I was sufficiently young that I, apart from Chris Claremont and John Byrne, mm. I didn't know the names of any comic book creators because I didn't care. Sure, no. When you're care. twelve years old, ten yeah, years old, exactly. You care. Um, so I was. I, I suppose it was. It was only really when Watchmen came out, the retrospectively, I look back at all of these comic books that had been written by the same, V for Vendetta, um, which started in a, in a, a short-run British comic book called Warrior Comic, which mm-hmm. I bought, kind of. Um, uh, uh, two characters called D.R. and Quinch in 2000 AD. D.R. and Quinch, very little known in, yeah. in America. Alan Moore, they're, they're two alien teenage kids who have enormous fun... Uh, nuking planets. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. Uh, DR stands for diminished responsibility. Um, and it was, so it was only very late that I kind of realised that the, the, you know, the same man were, uh, or also um, a, a fantastic run in 2008 called The Ballad of Halo Jones. Have you mm-hmm. ever, I mean, I, I have read that. Oh my, it was reprinted maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, I, I forget back home. I loved the ballad. And yeah. Especially really like, by this time I'd gone back you know, having left Edinburgh and having gone back to my hometown of Bristol. There's a where the, the horizons were very limited in all sorts of ways, and there's a theme in in the Halo Jones of just getting the fuck out, <laughs> just getting out. Um, and in fact, the last the last line of book one, someone says to Halo, "You know where are you going?" And she says, "Out, just yeah. out." And apparently, Moore had this notion that um, it would be a kind of ten book sequence. And by the end, Halo had reached the edge of the observable universe, and she still wanted to see more. She still wanted to get out. Um, That's a powerful metaphor for oh, a it, kid it, trapped in a small town. It really is. Trapped in a family or, yeah, or absolutely. any of these things. Absolutely. So how did... You know, obviously it happened very early, but something must have clicked in you that said, not just I'm enjoying these stories, but these stories are something that's created. Yeah. And that's something I can do or I want to do. Do you, do you remember that happening or remember that feeling early on? I, I, I remember having seen Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I remember having... I remember sitting down with a notebook and writing the novelization. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I don't know... I, you know, I could, I could theorize about why and how, kind of... To give it a sense of ownership, or maybe to because you know, no, no, it wasn't even on VHS for fucking ten right. years. Star Wars, yeah. So you saw it in saw it on cinematic release, and that was it. It was gone. Yeah. It wasn't on TV in Britain until about 1984, 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so maybe it was a sense of ownership. Maybe it was a sense to just to, to hold it in memory. Um, and then I just started writing a story, and then weirdly the. Yeah, it had the, the world's most impact. I wrote it and rewrote it until I was about fifteen. Oh my god! Um, and it had a. It was called another kind of warrior. And it was. I was reading it at the time. I kind of a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs and stuff. And and it was the story of a man who, in an attempt to commit suicide, finds himself in an alternative world, which of course is run by an evil empire. <laughs> right. And uh, with every draft was populated more and more by characters that I stole from popular fiction. <laughs> right. You know? Well, um, it sounds like an amazing synthesis of everything. It, I, I just threw everything in there, yeah. everything. And I'd, I'd come, home, so funny. come home from school and just, you know, just write in it. Um, yeah, so it, it's, I've always, 
I, I enjoy the act of writing mm-hmm. to such an extent that I fear to question it. Mm-hmm. Because if I question it, it might go away. Well, bad luck, because guess what we're about to do? <laughs> um, well, well, tell me, before again, before we kind of move on and talk about the business stuff, what is the process for you, whether it's writing a novel or writing a screenplay or a teleplay? What does your day look like when you're writing a project? I'm just, I'm intensely chaotic. Mm-hmm. I, know that, I know that people like outlines. Mm-hmm. I'm not great at outlines. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I haven't, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever seen a good outline. Really? Yeah. And, and, and to me, an outline is the equivalent of... Now, I haven't seen Mad Max yet. Mm-hmm. Now, if I sat down with a friend in a, in a pub or in a bar or in a cafe and they told me what Mad Max was like, that's an outline. Absolutely. It's a story about a story. Right. And it, it drains it of all nuance. It drains it of, you know... Uh, it drains it of all art, mm-hmm. in fact. Well, it takes away the discovery process yeah, for the writer yeah. as well. And, yeah. I get, and, I get, and I find myself kind of writing in a thrilling sequence or, you know, in a hilarious moment. <laughs> um, and my outlines suck. <laughs> um, they just do. Uh, and so I, I try as much as possible to... I'll do, a, I'll do a kind of, if necessary, a very brief story document about the kind of thing that, you know... Yeah, I mean, this is part of the TV and film business is you yeah. need to do these things. Yeah, I, uh, so how do you... How bare bones can you get it and how sort of vague and suggestive can it be? I, I, I try to... What I try to do is provide something a little bit lengthier but tonally similar mm-hmm. to the kind of text that you'd get on the back of a blockbuster book. Hmm. They're kind of unashamed. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yep. uh, so, you know, the, the first line will be, you know, will, will be a, a really bad movie poster tagline. <laughs> right. Uh, and then I'll... I, so I write blurbs more than I write outlines. Not least because... Um, part of the pleasure for me in writing is telling myself a story. Mm-hmm. And every, every fucking book I've ever read about screenwriting, every single one says, you must know how it ends. And to me, that would be the kiss of death. Mm-hmm. You know, If I knew how a story was going to end, then in, in some kind of weird way, the story already exists, so why tell it? So when you sit down, and again, you obviously have a, a notion of what the story is going to be. Yeah. Um, is the do you discover on the page, or is there you know hitting your head against the wall, going, I don't know what this guy does, or Both. you know what does that look like? I, I I write and discover on the page until it's necessary to bang my head against the wall. Yeah, and I bang my head against the wall for days and days and days. Oh really? Yeah, and I get so you stay <coughs> away from the keyboard for. A oh no 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 no! I can't. I, I'm fucking obsessive. Well, I can't. That's what I'm wondering. I can't leave the house. You know, you can always you can always tell how stuck I am by how clean I am and how clean the house is. Because <laughs> yeah. um, if if I'm stuck, I can't shower, I can't vacuum the floor. <laughs> you know, I snap at my children, um, and and it's my wife, my long suffering wife, God lover. Um, I was in a particularly bad state about three or four months ago, maybe a bit longer, mm-hmm. and I said, "Look, it's just gone." There are a finite number of stories, right? 
it's you know, oh it's like it's like the production of semen. At some point, it slows down, and then you know, it's, <laughs> you know, there's, there's going to be nothing left. It gets that dark. Oh, I mean, really, really, really. Oh um, and I said, and, and that's it. And I have to accept that I've told my stories. My stories are gone. I don't want to repeat myself. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. This is my career finished. And as I say, God love her. She just says, "Are you aware that you say this every time?" Right. Right. Exactly. She, she says your career is over about nine or ten times a year mm-hmm. um, and you've told your last story at least once a month <laughs> uh, so, so now I kind of recognise it as a I hesitate to, to describe it as part of process because how I work doesn't deserve the term process Well, but this, so, and this is what we learn mm-hmm. having these conversations is not only does everyone go through this sort of process but Everyone's is also wildly different. Yeah. Like there's, there's, nobody works the same way. And I'm, I'm massively envious of other writers who, who seem to, who can outline with facility. Mm-hmm. I'd also, outline's just, the, oh, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And I have to, and, and one of my great, I don't have any tips, but <laughs> uh, one of my great, there, there, are, there are very, very common tips which <laughs> seem to be common to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great, on, on BBC Radio 4, there was a great series about, no, actually, I'm lying. It was in Slate magazine. Oh. It was about the habits, the daily habits of people who kind of make stuff, create stuff, and musicians and artists and writers and oh. novelists. And, and, um, and they, they had very little in common, but the two things they had in common were coffee and showers and, and walks. And walks, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, you have yeah. these dogs. Yeah. That must be helpful. I never wore the dogs. Really? No, no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm scared of other dogs. Uh, oh, my God. But I don't know how you get anything done. Forget it. <laughs> it's all showers for you, showers and coffee. <laughs> now, one of, one of the great things is, I've discovered, that if I'm writing, say, a spy story, and mm-hmm. I'm stuck, just to watch loads of movies, none of which are spy stories, mm-hmm. just just watch and listen against the genre that you're working in. That's interesting. Um, and it, What do you think that does for your brain? Also, I mean, it was I was... I can't remember what it, what it was now, but I know that I was stuck. Uh, I used to work on a spy show called Spooks in the UK mm-hmm. and MI5 in America. I remember being very stuck on it and doing my usual trick of just going to... And something in the movie Notting Hill gave me an idea. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I'm fucked if I can remember what it was. Yeah. And it wasn't related to what was in Notting Hill, but there was some kind of, some kind of tangential link or suggestion that's interesting well yeah. sure I mean it can be the way a scene is played yeah. or yeah. You know, a relationship or absolutely or, or just a throwaway line of dialogue or sure. you know anything anything yeah in these moments when you don't know what comes next are you putting anything on the page or are you really just kind of walking around the house uh, uh, it's, it, like it, a caged animal <laughs> a bit of both it can all get a bit Jack Nicholson and sometimes if I, if I look back through yeah. my um if I look back through a script that I'm stuck on, because I, I version, I am very anal about the way that I version. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you can go to kind of at any stage of of a, a script, there will be a discrete document that I can go back really? and refer to. Yeah, interesting. And um, and, and, you'll, and and you'll and I, I, I want to yeah. hear the rest That's of it, but you'll kind of back up and yeah, revise from there yeah. and then back up again. And in case in case I want to. In case I change my mind about cutting something, mm-hmm. oh, sure. so I just all I do is if, if I'm writing a you know uh, if I'm writing an episode of Luther, the, the very first draft is just Luther four hundred one dot right. 001. 
if I make a, if I make a change of, of any kind, of, even if I'm just swapping scenes around mm-hmm. or cutting a bit of dialogue, I'll just, idea, I'll just give it, I'll call it number two. Yeah. And so by, by the end, I've got 30, 40, 50 different right. versions of the script. That's a good idea. Uh, it really works for me. And, um, but you can at any point, I'll go back to you know, version 18, mm-hmm. and there will be two or three pages of what the fuck are you doing here? What the fuck <laughs> happens here? I don't know what's fucking going on. Help me, oh God, oh dear God, please help. And there'll but be pages of it. It's funny because it sounds like that's the work that's often done in a writer's room mm. up on yeah. the cookboard, yeah. on the whiteboard, of, you know, once the story is somewhat sussed out, thank you, putting putting these scenes in order, figuring yeah. out the best way to tell the story. Yeah. And that's interesting that you'll do it in document. I think there are not a lot of minds that work out. <laughs> it's a hard thing to track. Um, it's a function of isolation, and I have to say, I've only, I've only really had one extended experience in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Really? I just loved it. What was that? What was that? It was on a show I did for NBC called Crossbones, which, you know, oh, sure. which ultimately wasn't an enormous success. For I have to say, for, for reasons completely unrelated to the writer's room or to the cast or to the crew um, but the process of working in the writer's room was joyous oh, I, I loved it and again I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fat ugly grown man and last day of the writer's room they took me out to dinner and I cried oh. I sat at the table <laughs> and I cried it was a, a joyous thing well you had a terrific group I, I know some of that group. Yeah, yeah it was like smart people good writers yeah. also nice people really nice people yeah. um so, I mean, it's funny that, and I, was, I wanted to ask about that, because you did have a room on that, but I think you, as the showrunner and mm. as the show creator, you wind up having, you wind up writing everything yourself in a big way. And I yeah. think that's, you know, showrunners do that to varying degrees, yeah. but what was your experience? How much it, rewriting or even just original writing did you do? Well, there, there's, a, there's a bit of a complication involved in that, and um, I'll tell you the story, and you might have to edit accordingly okay. once you've spoken to... Uh, lawyers or whatever. Um, we we had a we had a, a very a fairly fast writers room. It was kind of it was six or eight weeks or something. Um, really good fun. And and actually, um, Patricia Highsmith is one of my favourite writers. Once said that she has ideas like a rat has orgasms. Um, what is that? <laughs> just incessantly kind of pumping ideas out. Horrible. Uh, it is horrible. Uh, and I do I do have ideas. Very you know. Because I, I, I don't do anything else. All right. I do is write and read and watch stuff and, and yeah. not walk my dogs. Um, <laughs> and so we kind of, we'd broken 10 episodes in the first week. Yeah. Uh, and this was, you guys, you convened a writer's room well before production started, right? Yeah, at, at the time there was, a, there was a weird imperative that we worked quickly because there was a rival show. Oh, that's right. Um, and so the idea was that we would go into production quickly. Actually, that didn't happen for very <laughs> immensely complicated reasons. Right. Um, but we had, you know, we'd broken most of the main stories in the first week. Mm-hmm. And then we just spent the rest of the time making them better. Uh, and I came home, had my, had, you know, had my tears, came home already. And the idea was that each writer would be working on their mm-hmm. scripts simultaneously. Uh, I got it, was, it was something like an upfront order, right? Yeah, like that's right. Yeah. scripts or yeah. something like that. Yeah, it was a serious order. Yeah. And um, I came home, and the show fell over mm-hmm. for funding reasons. Right. And so I thought, okay, fair enough. Uh, I, as it happened, I had work to do on Luther. Right. So I was, and, and also I, I was. Was that on season two of Luther? I think it must have been season three. Okay. 
And also, I had um, I was writing Day of the Triffids for Sam Raimi. Oh wow! So I had I had stuff to do. <laughs> sure. And I, I kind of I, so I got busy. And I, I didn't mind the show falling over because I was I was very anxious about it at that point mm-hmm. and the practicalities. It kind of sure. the show happened just to <laughs> just to backtrack a little mm-hmm. bit by accident. Mm-hmm. And again, I know people don't want to hear this because it sounds charmed and. It, Listen, no show comes off as planned. Mm. It's all a happy accident. <laughs> it, I'm not even sure it was a happy accident. It was just an accident. <laughs> I, I got a phone call um, saying, you know, uh, from my agent, saying that somebody was making a pirate show in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And would you be interested in, in looking at the material? And I said, no, absolutely. Because I've never worked in New Zealand ever. And it would be very nice right. to work at home. Um, so I had a chat with the producers guy called Walter Parks who's kind of very you know got uh, a lot of writing and producing experience under his belt and um, you know, we, had, we had a really it was based on a book called The Republic of Pirates mm-hmm. a, a, an historical book yeah, which was no, no, no. very very informative and, yeah. um, so we had a nice interesting chat and then I was I was in LA to discuss Day of the Triffies with Sam Raimi and so we fitted in this meeting about Republic of Pirates and I didn't have I hadn't given it any thought I don't outline as you know it kind of so I went in to meet with Walter and I kind of pitched an idea about how to approach the material which was you know um, to make it a kind of Cold War spy show with mm. pirates uh, and I, I just extemporised but it was, it, was a, it was a bit of fun extemporisation mm-hmm. and, uh, and Walter said would you come in to repeat this to, to NBC this week I said yeah <laughs> absolutely so I found myself in a meeting at NBC with, you know, 110 people in the room. <laughs> right. Uh, again, Were you able to, to summon up that same story and the same enthusiasm? Because pitching is hard, too. Yeah, I just... I, I used to work in publishing and in, in sales. And, um, oh, well, it, 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 was, it was my job to, to sell books to people. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I, I like telling stories. I think it's, I'm better on the page. Mm-hmm. But I don't mind sitting in a room oh, telling yeah. a story. Um, and I, and I, can't, I can't formally pitch. Mm-hmm. I can't say we fade in on, you know, a beautiful sunrise over the Pacific. I can't. I, can't, I, I get very, very kind of. Yeah. All, all I do is get kind of very excited about describing the show that I want to make. Mm-hmm. That that's the and that's great. Like yeah. that's the best advice for pitching anyone. Yeah, I think so. Tell about. I mean, the one we've often heard is tell it as if you're describing it to a friend. That you have to see this show. That's exactly right. Yeah. and that's why I can't. I can't really pitch something I'm not interested in for exactly that reason. Yeah, it has to be. It. Uh, anyway, so I did this pitch. To, you know, and, and these meetings are full of lots and lots of people um, of various functions, which right. remain mysterious. Uh, and they, they kind of they enjoyed it, and we had a nice time. And I said hello to everybody, and I went home. And a couple of months later, um, I'd been discussing an overall deal with with NBC anyway. Uh, but I say a couple of months, a few weeks later, I woke up. And I kid you not, and this is the bit which is going to make people angry at me, and I, and I do apologise. Uh, but there were all these congratulations in my inbox. And the show had been announced at the upfronts. Um, without my... No one told you? No one told me. It was a series order. Jeez. And... What do you do with that? I, I, I just panicked. I, I, I panicked. <laughs> I, was, I was pacing the floor. I was going tomorrow. What the fuck am I going to do? Yeah. All I did was go... You know, I just... You know, and I cleared it by episode one, and I kind of got an idea about how the show would go. But oh my god! I, and um, but yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was, and it was all kind of, it was, uh, yeah. That's so bizarre. So, so what happens after that? You get on your phone, on the phone with your agent, 
and say, yeah. what now? And, you know, my agent, uh, Dan Ehrlich, is, is, is really good. And he just says, this is good for you. And, you know, this is a very rare thing and you should embrace it. And, uh, so I, I embraced it. And it was, it, was, it was unusual in many ways because it was a series order, because it was, uh, uh, it was expedited because of this, <laughs> this competing show. Uh, but it didn't go very smoothly. And, and so it fell over in September. Mm-hmm. I came home to work on Day of the Triffids on Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I was working on Luther, oh, the show came back alive again, like, you know, like Freddy Krueger. It just, it, just, it just came back. And I said, look, I, I am... I'm busy. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my show. I, I don't... So I said, look, there's kind of three options, one of which is you guys employ another showrunner, no harm, no foul. Um, the other one is that you... Uh, put it on hiatus until I'm ready to come back or you kind of use one of our writers as an interim showrunner hmm. um, and, I, and I nominated this is the bit you might have to cut I, I nominated who's a fantastic yeah. he's a fantastic um, writer to be my to be my second in my absence so then I went away to finish my work and I came back to the show in the January and uh, oh, for reasons I think I probably can't even that's right it was all gone. Every episode that we'd done in the writers' room was just really? gone. And each of, each of the writers were not nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is what happened. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is not unusual. Yeah. In fact, was not empowered to be... Mm-hmm. D- despite my request, was not empowered to be the show in my absence. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult to describe. But, uh, yeah, this, the show was gone when I got back. Mm-hmm. So I was... And the writers were... Because they were such good writers, most of them were showrunners in their own right. Yeah. They, were, they weren't staff writers. They were under contract. Right. And so they delivered their two drafts each. And, and I came back and the show was alive, but there were no episodes. It was a... Oh, my God. Yeah. And, was, and this was, I guess, until the Luther remake, uh, your, your only U.S. TV experience. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd had, a, I'd had a, an overall deal with 20th mm-hmm. um, a year or two before mm-hmm. just to write a couple of pilots and, right. and that kind of didn't pan out right and was but, that a thing where you would pitch them ideas and they would yeah, say, pretty, yes write that script or yeah, no, I mean, no, there was one that I one that I loved mm-hmm. I, I still think the best script I ever wrote was was under the 20th deal what can you tell us what it was yeah it was it was um, it was if, if I describe it it might sound similar actionably similar to an <laughs> existing show it was called Moriarty mm-hmm. and the idea was that uh Moriarty, the arch villain, had in fact been caught and was working undercover for the FBI. That's really fun. Um, and it was it was a really good, really fun show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the same season, the um, Elementary, oh, sure. yeah, Elementary was ordered, and they didn't want to have a kind of rival Sherlock Holmes style show. Right. And you know, it probably kind of all for the best because I'm sure Stephen Moffat would have hated me. If I did. <laughs> right, but there is that. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm still very proud of Moriarty. It's, it's, well, it's one of my favourite ever that's scripts. Okay. Um, but that's my only experience so far of television production in America. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back. Uh, let's talk even about before Luther started. Mm. Uh, what was your first experience in writing for TV or film? It was again, and I, again I apologise. Uh, it happened by accident mm-hmm. again. In that, I'd written a novel called *Always the Sun*, mm-hmm. which is a, a. It was my most kind of personal novel. Mm-hmm. In that, it dealt with the kind of weird, weird atavism I experienced when I became a father. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I was quite badly bullied when I was young because of the English and Scotland and books and comic books and yeah. glasses and what, whatever the fuck. Um, and it never bothered me. A, because in general in Britain life was more violent back then, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, because, you know, it just stuff happens. And it never bothered me mm-hmm. at all. And then I became a father and I had this, you know, you... you you do all the antenatal classes and you learn to breathe and you help your wife sit on a bucket and you rub her back and, <laughs> and all of that. And I was there during the birth and you're all prepared for this stuff. It's kind of, it's a, you know, you, you, you drop kicked out of the center of the universe and you're kind of prepared for that to an extent. Um, but then you kind of take home this kind of infinitely tiny, infinitely precious creature, which is entirely dependent on you. Um, and I began to obsess about my ability or lack of ability to protect my son <laughs> And I went all Travis Bickle for, for two years. I, I had a, a really... Well, I was stashing weapons through the house. Oh um, carrying knives everywhere. Um, and it, it got to... And I used to, I used to carry a hammer in the fold of his pram. Of his, um, so that I could whip out this. And I used to look at kids on the way to school. Innocent you know, eight, nine-year-old kids trying to pick out the bastard. Trying to pick out the bully. Wow. Uh, and it got to the stage whereby I wanted somebody to threaten my son so that I could kill them, so that I could prove I could protect him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, my long-suffering wife uh, had, had some words with me in Paris, actually, because many more weapons are legal in France than they are in, mm-hmm. in the UK. And we went on a romantic weekend with our young sons in Paris, and I spent half my time shopping for weapons. Right. <laughs> And I was going, you know, you can carry this in your purse, and like this, we can have it. And she kind of went, but just stop. Yeah. So I wrote a novel which was very much inspired by this experience about a, a man who, it's kind of anti where it's an anti shame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? it's, it's about a man who, who intervenes in the bullying of his son and with kind of disastrous results. Um, was that cathartic for you? Did you need that to move yeah, through this? It, it genuinely was cathartic. Sure. And, you know, and not least because I got to play out the kind of the, the logical extension of what would have happened right. if I'd behaved the way I was tempted to. Yeah. Um, and it was it, it was nominated for the Booker Prize this novel, which is mm-hmm. given how vital <laughs> it's quite extraordinary and in, and in fact weirdly it won what was called the People's Booker mm-hmm. that year so it's kind of the television television audience rather got to sure. vote for their thing and, um, and because of that it, it fell into the hands of various you know readers mm-hmm. you know. well there was obviously something you know because it was such a personal story yeah, yeah. that people responded to. yeah I mean obviously you were able to get that honesty on the page yeah even within this narrative structure, I, th- I think so. I'm still, I'm still very proud of it. That book, still very proud of it. And um, and one thing led to another, and people started to talk about the rights to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it was a personal book, but also just because I love, I love movies and TV, and I've been reading William Goldman and mm-hmm. many books about how to write a screenplay, yeah. and all of which are kind of presented as a kind of. Um, uh, kind of a mystery religion hmm. you know mm-hmm. the, the, you need some Rosetta Stone and, yeah. I, and I remember it's a code it's a code yeah you know and I remember looking at one of Robert McKee's graphs how can you apply a fucking graph to writing a story <laughs> it was extreme and I felt kind of uh, I felt stupid for not understanding hmm. but in one of Goldman's books I think the second one he says the sentence where he says you know all a script can say is 
where something happens, what time of day, what someone does and what they say. And I thought, oh, oh yeah, okay. Right. And, um, and so I decided to, um, to adapt Always the Sun myself. Not in order to sell it and get rich, mm-hmm. but just to see if I could, if I could do it. Hmm. Um, and I found that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the process of writing a screenplay. Oh, that's great. Well, what was the difference for you? I mean, outside of sort of the the formal differences, was there a difference? Not really. No, I kind of I, I think just that that very very minor epiphany with um, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, with, with William Goldman yeah. just that very minor epiphany just allowed me to slice and dice and, and cut out cut out stuff that didn't belong and I knew I knew that I would be asked to change the ending really? it has a it's got a the, the novel's got two narratives but you only understand that the second time you read it <laughs> first time you read it it's the father's story second time you read it it's the son's story um, and the father is constantly intervening to try and stop this horror happening to his son, which we never see. Hmm. It's always kind of the father's understanding of what's happening. Oh, I see. Um, ultimately, the father takes disproportionately violent action and does resolve the situation hmm. in a kind of atavistic, very male way. Um, but his son's response is to commit suicide. Hmm. And it's, a, and it's a, a big surprise ending. I had many people writing to me, hating me, and angry on me for the ending. And I knew that any production company would say, we can't have a 13-year-old kid kill himself. Yeah. Um, and so I challenged myself. A, was it the right thing to do? B, if you are going to acknowledge the necessity that you change this ending, mm-hmm. can you make it more appropriate to television, but also better? Mm-hmm. So can you do it such that you're not selling out? That's um, interesting. I mean, the, it's interesting... As a writer, to get that mm. chance to take the other road. Really, really, yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. great challenge. Really. Uh, so how, it must have been a struggle. It must have been more, you know, headbanging. I, I just had a, the, the novel, because I was telling myself the story, mm-hmm. the end of the novel felt like what happened. Sure. Even though, you know, it just had to happen. Writing the screenplay, I was, I was free to write what I wish had happened. Uh-huh. That sounds kind of dumb. No, that totally makes um, sense. But I was really proud. I was really proud of the ending. Mm-hmm. I, I was, and I still part of me now. When I think about how that story ends, I'm not sure which is the definitive ending. Sure. Um, and and so that found its way to various production companies, mm-hmm. uh, and there was quite a lot of interest in it. Ultimately, it was too bleak. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is a bleak story. It's a very it's a very urban anti-Western narrative. Not Western as in Western civilization, right. you know, as in Shane. Yeah. You know, a reversed Shane. Um, but it was executed sufficiently well that I was offered gigs on shows. Sure. Basically. It sort of became a calling card. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. And that's how uh, MI5 yes, came about. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you sort of got your chops yeah. and, and was MI5... And that series went for... A while. Yeah, it ran for ten seasons, which yeah. in England is, is a that's a shitload. Yeah. yeah. And was it done in the sort of traditional uh, BBC model where all the scripts were written up front and then production started? It was kind of, it was kind of yes, so not quite, but almost a kind of weird hybrid. They would have a they would have a, a three or four day story conference in a nice hotel somewhere mm-hmm. in the Cotswolds. <laughs> uh, so you you'd go to some lovely little kind of eighteenth century hotel and just 
drink shit loads of gin <laughs> um, and, and kind of toss around ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and every writer would then go away with one or two episodes to, to flesh out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the way it works practically is that, is that you know, in any production you can, you can plan, but production itself always derails the plans. So there would be, I guess, I guess half or two-thirds of the script would be written, but then the rewrites would start as... Right, you know, of course. Yeah. And, and how was it, you know, this is the first time writing characters mm. and stories that were not your own. Yeah. So how was that? Uh, was there a learning curve to that point? I, I just loved it. I just really, just really, really liked it. Yeah. Um, and there's something... This has never occurred to me before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually doing that, taking on other people's characters, is exactly what I was doing when I was seven. Exactly. You know, I'd see Battlestar Galactica and suddenly <laughs> Starbuck was in my book. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was the same process. Yeah, right? there is something really fun about getting to play with other people's toys. Oh, it's really good. And yeah. killing them is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really, really good, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I enjoyed that thoroughly. I did and, enjoy and how long were you with that, Joe? I don't know, like three, three or four years. Oh, okay, so um, a good amount of time. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so you kind of must have learned, you know... Dealing with television people and yeah. production, and all learned that. Learned. There was um, I, I worked uh, at the time. It was her first production role. A woman called Katie Swindon, mm-hmm. who um, went on to become a kind of great friend and colleague. But for my first episode, I, I was parachuted into my very first episode. For what? very yeah, they, they, they were they were they were in crisis. They were behind you know badly behind in the schedule mm-hmm. a writer wasn't available they had to get a fucking script really okay. quickly yeah. so they parachuted me in and uh and I wanted to do a really kind of old school spy story kind of very Le Carre-esque mm-hmm. kind of no computers no kind of facial recognition oh. no you know just a really old fashioned story so I so they gave me one line they gave me one line to base a story on hmm. um and I sent in my first draft and I had this sequence I thought how can I get a message secretly across London whereby the security services can, you know, can monitor or see it. So what I did was I had a guy approach a homeless man, give him £50 and a message. Right? A homeless man goes into a florist. The homeless man catches a bus across London, goes to a florist, orders a bunch of flowers, and the message is on the message with the flowers, mm. which goes to the recipient. And I thought that was kind of really cool, very old school, you know. And, uh, and Katie phoned me up and said, oh, we've read the script and we had, you know, the first. and she said, um, you know, we love it, which is always, yeah, the, the first <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, they love it. What the fuck's going to happen to me now? Hang yeah, up. exactly. It's ended there. But she said, okay, the, the, the thing with the tramp and the bus, you know, we, we, we really love that. We think it's very clever. Um, but, okay, we're going to have to close down a street in central London. Oh, sure. We've got to get permission from the council. Yeah. We've got to hire a bus. We've got to fill the bus with extras. Yeah. You know, and Production said, reality. Yeah. And she said, you know, you've just... You know, it's a great sequence, <laughs> which it probably wasn't. I loved it. <laughs> she said, but, you know, it's a quarter of a page, and you've just cost us £35,000. Oh, my God. You know, and that, for me, was a, there was a little light bulb went on in my head. Yeah. And, and when you ask me the, um, the real difference between writing novels and screenplays, is that is the bit... I really love writing for production. Mm-hmm. I love writing... And I love working with producers like Katie Swindon, who have the attitude. It's very my scripts very often frighten producers. Why? Uh, uh, an episode of a typical BBC hour will have sort of between I think it's sixty five and eighty five scenes, mm-hmm. 
an episode of Luther will very often have 120 or 140. Really? Yeah, lots of yeah, lots of little scenes, lots mm-hmm. of intercutting, lots of. Um, and I love to work with producers who sort of say, "How do we make? Not you can't right. fucking possibly do this <laughs> on television on a television schedule, on a television budget." But kind of, how do we how do we achieve this? Yes. Um, and it's become a the whole Luther team have become absolute masters at That's doing this thing. Well, and it, there must be something once you sort of had that realization that I'm writing with these parameters. Yeah. That the the parameters help. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there, there was one. There was one episode of Spooks. I think it was. It was, would have been the fourth episode of the second season that I worked on, and that. You, what do you call it? I've forgotten what's bloody called. Well, you got your standing set. Mm-hmm. And if you're running out of money, you 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 play on your standing set. So this was episode nine of a ten episode okay. series. And the money was gone. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that you do is do as much a bottle episode as you possibly could. Set it all on the standing set. All you know. Uh, but there'd been an administrative error at the producers, and the standing set had been dismantled. Oh my god! So we had no money, no standing set, um, and I had to resolve. An arc, a whole series mm-hmm. arc had to be resolved. Sure, so not. Uh, and they said to me, can you resolve the series arc <laughs> uh, with no guest characters, no set pieces, um, no nothing, no nothing. Or we could have one bad guy. We could have, we could have a bad guy. Uh, and I... And I there are very many kind of legal complications about where you can shoot in London and where you can mm-hmm. where you can have guns and where you can mm-hmm. although I have to say the most recent series of 24 seem to flout those rules um, for instance you threw around a lot of fox money I the think they must have it's like you can't um, you can't shoot on the tube with a gun mm-hmm. for very you can't even have a book poster on the tube with a gun interesting um, but I found out from Katie for this particular episode that you can shoot on the streets of Westminster if you have two actors or fewer um, and a crew of less than seven. Oh, my God. So we use that kind of legal loophole to construct mm-hmm. a whole... I said, OK, so we don't have the spy base. We have to explain that in the story somehow. So let's have them expelled from the spy base. They're thrown out. They're fired. Uh, let's have them on the streets of London, literally on the streets of London, in groups of two or less. Mm-hmm. Um, great. which implies a chase sure. and, and so we, we built up this whole story yeah. from these very very severe restrictions that's really that's exciting though. oh it was such good fun I <laughs> loved it I did love it and it's yeah. one of my favourite episodes that's it's, great it's a, it's um, a bonkers episode but that's good. really fun yeah um, so, so then tell me a little bit um, and I'm sure you've talked about this at length but creating Luther where did this come from uh, and, and what was sort of the discovery process uh, in, in creating these stories, I was kind of weird. I'd, I'd done. Um, I'd left. I'd left Spooks. Uh, kind of told my spy stories, and I'd done a little bit of work for the BBC. I'd written uh, a two-parter about Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. which was to be one of three, three two-parters, if you see, mm-hmm. each of which told an untold story of Victoria's life. And I'd never written historical drama. I'd never written anything without a fucking car chase in, in some <laughs> some way, shape, or form. Um, and I re- again, I really enjoyed this kind of process of writing something. It, it, it was—I don't know if you know the writer Angela Carter, but if, mm-hmm. you, if you can imagine 
an Angela Carter take on Victoria's <laughs> early life. It was I dark loved and it. weird. It was dark <laughs> and weird. It was intensely gothic. Um, you know, if it would have been done badly, it would have looked like a Bonnie Tyler. Film, <laughs> right. but, but if it was done well, it would have been great. Um, and uh, uh, that that didn't happen for various. The, the other two things just didn't get written. And Jane Tranter left the BBC to go to BBC mm-hmm. America and or BBC Worldwide rather. Um, and I was, I was. It was my first experience of being a kind of jobbing writer. So I started to look around for gigs, hmm. um, which I'd never done before. And again, that was quite interesting because. Uh, so I was going to go and work on a show called Wallander, mm-hmm. uh, but the BBC called me in and they offered me a deal, uh, an exclusive BBC deal to just just make stuff for them for the next two mm-hmm. years. Which is that unusual for the BBC? I, I, I know a lot about that. I think it's reasonably unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. It, and when I say a deal, it's, it's nothing on the scale that right. you get in America. Right. Um, but you at least know that there there will is potentially an outlet. Absolutely, yeah. and there, there were kind of a guaranteed number of scripts a year, right. not guaranteed production, but guaranteed scripts. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they took me to lunch, as the BBC's want. We had a nice civilized English lunch, <laughs> and. Uh, and they asked me for ideas. And I, the, the weird thing about pitching Luther is that I didn't have an idea. What I had was a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't want. I asked them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And they said that since the rise and dominance of CSI, most crime fiction had been team-based. Hmm. It was kind of, you know, you had ensemble casts. Yeah. And they kind of missed the days of having an iconic, an iconic character. And so, so the thing that we're most looking for is, you know, an iconic detective. Interesting. Um, and I'd had actually as a character I'd intended for a novel. I'd had an idea for a for a, a what we called him Mad Cop. <laughs> uh, and and weirdly, post Homeland, because um, it's become more common currency now but I, I want to have someone who had bipolar 2 disorder hmm. um, and not least because speaking to police and advisors and so they, you know the, a lot of the television cliches about how police react to their job in fact are true and are hmm. embedded in truth um, so I want to find a way to to kind of extrapolate from that but in such a way that it wasn't just another apparent cliche and to see someone struggling with, you know... With, so I want to have a kind of bipolar detective who was also a kind of uh, an intense atheist. Um, and that was, and that, but that was going to be a novel. That, that was planned for a novel. But I talked about this guy over lunch. I've got this guy, this kind of mad cop, and he's going to be properly mad. Um, uh, and I talked a lot about Columbo, because I, I love Columbo. I've mm-hmm. always loved Columbo. I love the format of Columbo. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to write a mystery. Um, not least because mysteries, I think, take planning. You've got to have a certain kind of outlining mindset. You need to know where the end is. You need to know what the end is. And yeah. I, so I, I literally think that I'm incapable of writing a mystery. <laughs> uh, but the Columbo format, for people who don't know, and we have talked about this, comes up uh, surprisingly often right. on these panels, uh, on this podcast. The Columbo format was you knew who did it yeah, yeah. Uh, from the very beginning. The first thing you about, see. Yeah. yeah. The first thing you see is the murder being committed. Right. And, um, and it's and so, Columbo's discovery. Yeah. Of how is he going to catch the... Uh, and I, I just love the fact that Columbo essentially annoys people into confessing. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's the most... Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful format. And, and <laughs> Peter Falk was... I mean, it probably... In terms of kind of crime and mystery fiction, is my favourite character of all time. And I will now... If, if, I, if I'm... 
So my fallbacks are Captain Britain and Columbo. <laughs> this is where I would... That is a great bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I did a very messy pitch about kind of Columbo and bipolar 2 disorder and, you know, and so on and so forth. Sure. And they looked at me askance. Uh, it, was, it was by no means a good pitch. It was utterly chaotic. And I, was, I wasn't even extemporising. I, I sounded like I was on meth. I was just... Throwing ideas around. It's these things that were swimming in your brain. Yeah, they were just going around that my head. They could all make a story together. Yeah, exactly. In, yeah. You know, in some way, if they trusted me. And, uh, and I, was, I was very, very aware. Do you know, you, you, sometimes you go to a meeting and you come away and you think, oh my God, I'm such a dick. Uh, and someone assures you, says, no, actually, that was really good. This time I actually was a dick. Because my agent called me up and said, you didn't do very well then, did you? You know, they're, they're very kind of. They really enjoyed the lunch, but it was, you know, they're, they're not quite sure what you were saying to them. So, can you just, can you just put something on paper? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, I struggle with that in terms of outlines and stuff. Uh, so, I, I sat down and wrote the script. I just thought, oh. I, I can't get into a situation, mm-hmm. especially, you know, with, with series documents, series Bibles, whatever. Again, you're always talking about the stories will be like this this would they would show the fucking story yeah and so I, I sat down and I wrote the pilot to Luther very very quickly mm-hmm. I did kind of sort of seven or eight days and just, oh, wow. just so, did, so it seems like you knew who this guy yeah. was yeah. when you sat down yeah. and you knew his world yeah but how did the story itself start to take place? Like, how did even the other characters and, and you know, I've got the n- thrust of it... Got no I, I've got no idea. It was a frenzy. Oh, right. It was just a frenzy. Yeah, it really was. It really, I, and I knew I wanted him to have a kind of... Um, actually, in, in, in some ways, Alice wasn't my idea. It, it, initially, I, I was going to steal an idea from another writer. Um, <laughs> uh, a crime writer called Mo Hader. Mm-hmm. And in her first novel called Birdman I think she had her cop who's called Jack Caffrey had bought a house and was living opposite a man called Penderecki who 30 years before Caffrey knew had killed his younger brother hmm. and I was and I was really intrigued by this this relationship yeah. they were literally fucking neighbours uh, and I was going to steal that to some extent and, and, and have you know my main character be kind of frenemies with somebody mm. who he knew had committed a terrible crime a long time ago. And, um, and a friend of mine, Caroline Skinner, uh, who was Doctor Who producer for a, a long time, when I was describing this relationship, she said, oh, I think it should be a girl. I think, I think his frenemy should be a girl. Mm. And I kind of took umbrage. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Don't you know my ideas are precious? The ones I've stolen. <laughs> exactly. This is, this is a premium stolen idea. Yeah. Uh, but I kind of I slept on it and I woke up and I thought yeah she's right she'd be a girl mm-hmm. and both Luther and Alice just kind of came alive on the, I didn't know what Alice's story was mm-hmm. I just as soon as she started talking she didn't stop which was oh interesting yeah and that's that's a great feeling I mean oh, that's, that's what you chase in the writing yeah it's, it's all, I mean and, and it's weird because um, Alice is infinitely more clever and you know orders of magnitude more witty than I am so I, I, there's something very odd about that process where you yeah. know, I, I could not communicate as well as Alice does. Mm-hmm. Well, that's always that's such a strange thing. I mean, and again, we've talked to writers who say this is like I, I can only tell 
I can only write a character as smart as I am. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. not always true. Yeah, I don't. I don't get. I can. I can understand. I can understand writing a character who is much more evil mm-hmm. than I am. Sure, because. You know, you're only so evil. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. on on the bell curve, you know. Um, but I think writing about evil so often is is embedded in fear. You're worried about what somebody might do to you or your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think fear is the is the engine which generates many narratives about evil. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and similarly, writing about heroism mm-hmm. because it's just what we all aspire to. I mean, I would I would. If I could be anybody, I would be either Indiana Jones or the Doctor. <laughs> you know, because they they are the exemplars of our better self. Indiana Jones, particularly, I, mm-hmm. I worship Indiana Jones uh, more than I could even express. <laughs> um, but what I always loved about Indiana Jones is is his indefatigability. Mm-hmm. Is the fact that he always gets up. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's never quite up to the task. He always bites off a bit more than he can chew, but he just will not stop. And that's heroism, and we can all aspire to that. But intelligence, how how you write a character who is more intelligent and more witty than you, I don't don't know. I don't know. (laughs) That's really interesting. And maybe it is situation. You know, maybe it's Alice is in this world, and so she can be clever in this moment. In a way that I never could. Exactly. Yeah, that, it's yeah. a separate thing from you. She's also kind of my secret self. <laughs> I think, you know, if I could be anybody that I'd ever written, I'd be Alice. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's uh, creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, when, uh, uh, after the read-through for the first episode, we, we had a, a dinner with cast and crew. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so all of us in Soho in London getting very, very drunk. And I was yeah. sat next to Ruth Wilson, who plays Alice. Yeah. And she asked me where the idea had come from. And I'd, I'd had, you know, this is not uncommon, I'd had one gin too many. And I said, well, you know, Alice is just my perfect girl. And it freaked. I mean, she, her polite was perfectly modulated and English and very, you know, very polite. But the, the light of terror and discomfort that went on behind her eyes. Of course. Oh, my God. I mean, I think there is something to, you know, you have to love these characters or you have to yeah. want to be these characters. Uh, it's a lot like acting in that writing is a lot like acting in that yeah. way. Um, but did you feel the same with Luther? I mean, that's a hard character to get close to. Um, it's weird. The, the relationship with Luther is strange. Not least because I, yeah. I find it now very difficult to imagine a time when Luther wasn't Idris Elba. Mm-hmm. You know, and that yeah. time existed for, you know, I, I suppose between writing that script and casting Idris in TV terms was quite, you know, expedited, quite mm-hmm. short, but... You know, in real life, it was, I guess, seven, eight, nine months. He was someone else in my head. Yeah. And I can't imagine that now. Yeah. And so I always say that Idris and I kind of have joint custody of the character. And, and that's the best yeah. feeling when you find that actor. Yes, yeah. This character was created by two people. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I think it's unusual. It's un- and it is great, and it's, <laughs> but there's a certain... Uh, reprehensible malice in writing Luther because my first thought when I sit down to write a new one is what can I, what can I do to him now absolutely yeah. it's funny I, I've spoken to actors who don't they approach it in a different way mm. right because they're not there for for that part of it it's yeah. what terrible things can I do to yeah. this character yeah. there's this what can I do to get out of these yeah. terrible things absolutely yeah 
and I, I, I love, I, I do enjoy, I, I, I enjoy working with actors, I do, I do. Yeah. It's, and it's not a, the, the way a good actor approaches their job is not dissimilar from a novelist, in that so much of it is about details, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so much of it is about, you know, is about showing that. Raymond Carver, Raymond Carver is someone else who I, I, I kind of go beyond admiration. I read Carver again and again and again. Instead, I, I very often read screenplays because I like to see how people do stuff in screenplays mm-hmm. as a technical document. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like for instance, James Cameron. His screenplays are brilliant because they're like watching a movie. Oh, interesting. I don't think I've ever looked really, at Really, really well written. Huh. Really well written screenplays. Um, very, you know, lots of, you know, he won't describe a tank, he'll give you the model. Right. But for some reason, that, that creates an image more, you know, even though you're not seeing the proper tank. He's, he's, I really like Jim Cameron's scripts. Um, but I read Raymond Carver um, because I don't know how he does what he does. Hmm. It's remarkable. You know, and he would, he would write a story in a day mm-hmm. and then spend a year taking words out of it. Wow, really? Yeah, until what was left was just kind of... Well, and that's what you get from him. Yeah, right? absolutely. This economy yeah. of language yeah. and of story, too. I mean, and they're so small. It's magic, isn't yeah. it? There's, there's a line, the first, story I, the first story of his I ever read was Fat, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, has no real narrative. Mm-hmm. And it is literally about a, a woman who works in a diner describing a fat customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's an anecdote, it's not a story, except the last line is, my life is going to change, I can feel it. Hmm. And I've never... Re- I just told you it then and I broke out in goosebumps. Yeah. And I don't know where the magic comes from, but it's there. And, um, and working with actors, sometimes you get the right actor just in those tiny choices, those tiny moments. Hmm. And, with, and with Idris, was it the actor that Idris most reminds me of is Steve McQueen. Because hmm. he's, he's got a great stillness and... In, is interiority a word? Interiorness. If not, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know there's so much going there's on. There's so, so much going on behind those eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And, and hearing a Carver influence makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially in looking at Luther, especially in that first season, there's so much happening in these very small scenes, in these very small moments. Um, is it something you're aware of when you're putting it down, or is it just this is how the story is told? I, I write intensely detailed stage directions. Really? Yeah. Um, oh, do you get yelled at for that? Uh, <laughs> I used to. Yeah, really? I used to. Yeah. Um, still very economical. I try. Mm-hmm. If I try to write like anybody, it's like Carver. In mm-hmm. the, but but just. But only if it's necessary. Only if I think it kind of connotes and communicates an essential detail, mm-hmm. which you know you you would rather. You know, you want to show sadness, not have a character say, I am sad. Right. You know? And yeah. it, it could just be the way they're dressed or... Uh, and I, I kind of... Yeah, my, my stage directions are, are, are stupidly detailed. You know? Not long, but just very precise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I would imagine they're dense scripts. Mm. Uh, again, there's so much going on. There's so much that has I, to come across. I think and I hope, and I think this is the novelist training, mm-hmm. that, that I, I write for a reader, not for a viewer. Mm-hmm. That's the... So, you, you know, your first audience is your colleagues. Absolutely. And they have to be able to see the show that you're, that you're talking about. Yeah, I think it's very um, smart. Uh, and, and often forgotten. Yeah, I, I think um, so, yeah. I want to ask briefly uh, about Doctor Who, and mm. we'll, we'll kind of wrap up, but 
uh, talk about getting to play with someone else's toys. <laughs> you know, and I talked to Chris Chibnall about yeah. this, who had a similar experience. It yeah. sounds like of here's a character that you grew up with, a, a superhero that you loved. Yeah. Um, how were you able to put that aside to write the character as a character? I, I didn't put it really? aside at all. Yeah, it was. A, I think that's what he said too. Yeah. <laughs> my assumptions are all wrong. The uh, my first memories were of Doctor Who. My, my very, very first wow. memory is, is my nan, my, my grandmother had a, a fake fur coat. And I remember lying on my nan's fake fur coat, <laughs> watching the screen from, you know, five inches away, mm-hmm. watching a giant spider crawl on Sarah Jane's back. <laughs> you know, my first experience of true terror. Um, and I, I grew up, I, I said to my children that me giving, me being able to give Doctor Who to my children. Hmm. is the equivalent of passing on a watch yeah. something something <coughs> that I treasure that they can now treasure mm-hmm. uh, and I, I stepped into it with, with all of that weight on my shoulders yeah. and it was the, the first time I typed in TARDIS I, I, I had to get up and walk away from my desk Absolutely. I'm writing a scene <laughs> it's in the TARDIS I can't believe it um and yeah, it was just it was just it was fun. I mean, the first one I wrote was was Hyde, which is the the more successful of the two episodes for for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. I think, um, but I wanted to write um, I wanted to write an episode of Doctor Who that I would have watched while I was on my grandmother's fur coat. And so I said it in 1972, you know, and it, it's a chamber piece. It's all in a you know big haunted house, and it was it was just fun. And once the Doctor began to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I had 50 years of the Doctor speaking in my head. Sure. But you also have to write this Doctor. Yeah. You have to write for this production team. Yeah, you have to yeah, write yeah. for this companion. Uh, how did you wrap your head around Do you know, I don't know. Also, one of the weird things is, it, is that Hyde, which was, I think it was the fourth or fifth episode, was in fact um, the first episode that Clara shot. Oh, really? So it was Clara's first episode. So you had nothing to look so at. So there was nothing to look at. There was nothing to read. Yeah. Um... And I didn't, at that time, know what her secret was. Hmm. So I was on the phone to Stephen saying, that I'm trying to, I'm, you know, I'm trying to allude to the mystery of Clara. What, what is, you know, what are we going to find out in episode 13? Hmm. And Stephen would just say, she's just a normal girl. Hmm. Like, but she's not, because she's a ghost. We've seen her die, and, right. you know, and she was a Dalek before. Right. <laughs> how, how can this be? And he just said that she's just a girl. Hmm. But there, so. is, there is something to knowing your character has a secret. Yeah. And you can yeah. write just a girl yeah. who has a secret, no matter what that secret is. And in that episode, you know what, I'm still rude. There's, there's a scene in, in that episode where um, the, the Doctor takes Clara in the TARDIS, and they, for various plot reasons, for reasons of plot, uh, he visits the, the, the beginnings of the Earth mm-hmm. and the end of the Earth. And uh, it the end of that scene, he and Clara are looking out over a kind of blasted landscape. And she says, you know, am I out there? Is my body buried out there somewhere? And he says, well, you know, I suppose it must be. And she says, well, you know, we're here looking for... It's a ghost story, this episode. And she says, you know, we're, we're here looking for a ghost. But we're all ghosts. You know, I've been dead for millions of years. Uh, and not knowing the mystery allowed me to write that scene. Exactly. And, and it's one of my favorite moments that I've ever written. I'm, I'm so madly proud of it. That's really well you know. um, And were you, were you here at the time? Were you in 
Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and is the script that wound up... I assume you didn't go for production or anything. Yeah, I did. I, oh, did Because it was Doctor Who, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, that's great. And I took my kids. I took oh, them. that's excellent. Um, and I have to say, go on the record, is... There are many, many actors I've met who I greatly like and greatly admire, but Matt, I'm not wholly convinced that Matt Smith, in fact, is not the Doctor. <laughs> he's, he's a remark. He was. He, was a, he appeared to us one day. Uh, he, uh, we were um, filming in a in a big country house, which coincidentally was outside my hometown of Bristol, so wrapped in a family trip to it. But took my children to set, and we were sat outside in the little seats, and they were shooting inside. And uh, and uh, watching it on the monitors and stuff, and you know we cut, and uh, and I said to my boys, now you have to remember that Matt is not the Doctor, and and not only that, he's at work, mm-hmm. so he's going to walk off set, and you guys are going to want to speak to him, but he's working, he's going to want to rest, he's going to want to refresh his lines for the next scene, so just you know, so my kids being very good kissing, okay, and Matt Smith walked out. Uh, with Sarah Louise Coleman and uh, kind of approached us and he saw my kids and he went oh hello oh hello and he ran over to my kids who are you then who are you then introduced himself I'm Matt I'm Matt and my kids were just dumbfounded right and also they didn't want to misbehave <laughs> so they've been told not to speak to him so I had to say it's okay, it's okay you can talk to him and he spent he spent ten minutes with my kids and at the time, he had the new costume on, the, the purple tweed costume, mm-hmm. which nobody had seen. And he said, do you want to try on the new costume? Do you want to try it on? Oh, so he's there posing with my kids, and the, my kids got to try on the new costume. And, of course, they couldn't show anyone for a year. Right. <laughs> they keep it secret. Um, and at, at which point, I, I just fell in love with him. But the next day, we were shooting in a forest in Wales, and we went to set again. Very hot day in a forest in Wales, you know, and the usual kind of set accoutrements that... You know, Matt's caravan was there. And again, Matt was sitting outside his caravan. And, uh, and I said to the kids, okay, now, he was really nice to you yesterday. <laughs> again, he's at work, so, so just, you know, say hello to him later on, but just let him do his work. And we walked past on the way to set, and he went, oh, hello! And he ran over again um, and spent another sort of ten minutes talking to them. And then he said, do you guys like sport? And my boys like sport. So he said, so do you want to go into my caravan because um, the Olympic torch is in there that I ran with? So do you want to get your photograph taken with the oh doctor? I, I, <laughs> I, would, I would go into battle for Matt Smith. I, he's, the, he's, he's an amazing actor. He's, he, you know, he was antic. He was, he was mm-hmm. 26 and a million years old at the same yeah. time. He was, he was cold. He was warm. He was funny. He was serious. He's, he's, he's an incredibly skilled actor, but as a human being, I, I think he's... Extraordinary. One amazing experience. Yeah, that's, it was, that's just what you want. Oh, it, it, it couldn't amazing. couldn't have been any better. It oh, couldn't have been. Uh, and was the script that you wrote what we saw on the screen? Yeah, Hyde was pretty much. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There was. I I wanted to. The only real change was that I wanted to make it a bit scarier. Mm-hmm. And the, the the monster in Hyde. Um, my original conception was that in this. Uh, in this kind of bubble universe thrown up on the quantum phone, that essentially what would be in there would be a zombie time lord. <laughs> Somebody who, yeah, and they were getting chased by a zombie time lord, which I thought was That's really fucking scary. <laughs> um, uh, Stephen didn't. Stephen <clears throat> wanted uh, a kind of a happier ending. 
He wanted it to be, you know. Well, and when I proposed the love story, he went, that, that's it. it oh, it's okay. monsters in love. Yeah. And he, he, didn't want, he, he said he didn't want to do jewels. He said he just didn't want a, a shark chasing right. them. Let's, let's give them... An emotional way to the yeah. monster, too. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, it's, that, that is something he's great at. Yeah, is there's a story to yeah. everybody. Yeah. Uh, that, that monster could have a spin-off. Decline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I have to say well, about, about Matt Smith again on the same day. Absolutely. End of a very, very, very long day. Very <laughs> hot day. 12, 13 hours in the hottest day in England I've experienced for many years. And, uh, and his last scene was a, was a scene whereby he was stood in a forest clearing and a guy in a rubber suit had to jump up behind him. Right? Uh, and... He would do, Matt must have been exhausted. He must have been so tired, having run around and spat these complex lines. And, and, uh, and every time this bloke jumped up behind him in the rubber suit, from inside the rubber suit, you'd hear, Is that all right, man? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go, Mate, you were brilliant. That was brilliant. That was the best one yet. That's great. Tireless. What a Tireless. prince. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God amongst men. <laughs> Got a month, What are you working on these days? Um, lots of stuff, in one way or another. Um, I will Anything t- you can talk about? Yeah, I can say I will talk about some of it, sure. and then if I can, I'll. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, well, so we got Luther in America, mm-hmm. uh, which is currently in a state of weird suspended animation because we're right. having trouble casting it. Oh, interesting. Um, I was wondering what, because it seemed like everyone was so high on it yeah. for so long, and it makes sense. I mean, well, it's kind of it's a it, tough character. In a weird way, it's good news, because I, I kind of, you know, people were, a lot of people were very unhappy when they heard there was going to be an American yeah. remake, and I understand why. Um, but I only went into it with the sole caveat that if we do it, we do it well. Mm-hmm. It's just not a cheap spin-off. It's not just a remake with another actor that we recreate the show mm-hmm. for an American audience. And of course, it's, it's, it, it, the show is known in the States, but to a... To a it's a, I hesitate to use the word, but it's a kind of cult show. Mm-hmm. It's got a small, devoted audience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, as much, it's funny, as much as television people talk about yeah. it, my mom doesn't know. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, so I'll, I will only do it if I can make a show that I'm proud of. That's good. Uh, and that means that the casting process has been very protracted. I have to say 20th uh, Century Television and Fox Broadcasting have been <coughs> really patient with me. So, and we've seen lots of really good actors. Of course. Um, really, really good actors, but just nobody who, you know, who feels quite right for what I want to do. Well, I would imagine... I mean, you want someone who's going to bring something different yeah. to what Idris brings yeah. because otherwise it's why, why, why do it yeah absolutely right. yeah. and we did, we did we found I think I mean this can't go out but we did find the perfect actor really um, and it just fell over at the last minute unfortunately who was it I'll take this out oh shit exactly right <laughs> exactly it would do that I know I know I know so again just like when we when we cast Luther we're looking for Qualities. We're not looking for. It, it can be an actor of either sex or any gender mm-hmm. or any ethnicity. They just have to have the right qualities for the character right. to reinvent the character, but to own the character. Yeah. Was there talk of having interest in it? It just never really was interested in, yeah, in doing I it. Again. And I think you know he, he, he I, he's a he's a proper actor. He doesn't want to just retread what he's done before. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And I think had I had I said, look, okay, we're going to start again and do a completely new show mm-hmm. 
um, you know, not retell any of the old stories. I think maybe he would have been a little bit more interested, but he's a producer on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he and I talk about casting quite a lot. That's great. Yeah, and we have fun doing it. Was there a feeling for you of how do I not retread the same material? How do I make it a new animal? I don't... There are moments in it. I mean, I can in my head, I've reinvented all of it. I can already see the reinvention. <laughs> but there are... Through it runs a thread of very particular Englishness, not even Britishness. Luther is a very, very English show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm thinking very hard about how to de-Englishify mm-hmm. some aspects of it. But on the whole, I mean, for instance, there's, a, there's a, a, a bad guy in the second season who wears a Mr. Punch mask. And Mr. Punch has got a very specific cultural significance in the UK, which it has not at all in America. <laughs> yeah. So how do we reinvent that character? Yeah, um, and he's kind of very interested in, you know, in the history of London. So, yeah, I mean, there will be a, a, a great deal of comprehensive reinvention, mm-hmm. but not throwing babies out of the bathwater. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. And is Trippin still alive? Well, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, Trippin was, is a really interesting process because people liked the script mm-hmm. and it looked like it was going to go and then the rights reverted oh really I didn't know that um, so and then sort of three or four weeks ago I got a call from Mark Gordon mm-hmm. um, saying isn't it good news about, about Brian and I said what's good news about Brian who <laughs> um, and he said well Brian Kirk's directing Triffids so Triffids is now with Sony uh, Brian Kirk, who launched Luther, who's a very, very good director. He was the first Luther director, worked a lot on Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. really talented director. All things being equal, you know, and with luck and whatever. Right. Hopefully Triffids is still alive. I'm really proud of the Triffids script. Oh, that's great. Um, there is also Mama 2. Oh, really? Yeah, which is waiting to... Oh, we didn't even talk about Mama. That, that is a great movie. Oh, I really you. enjoyed it. Uh, I did not know what to expect. It scared yeah. the shit out of me. Oh, <laughs> awesome. That's the highest <laughs> highest possible compliment. Um, so we're waiting for um, waiting for the right director for Mama 2. But that's, okay. that's kind of... Good. That's ready to go. And again, I'm, it was quite a scary thing. I didn't want to... I, I didn't see any point in writing a sequel unless I thought we could do something better mm-hmm. you know and how do you kind of expand the mythology of Mama with that so mm-hmm. there's Mama 2 very excited about uh, it's scary the, the second one is really scary oh that's fantastic um, and horror's hard uh, yeah I mean horror I've watched so many horror movies lately where I love the first 45 minutes and then it just yeah yeah, and then you see the monster yeah and it's you know seeing that I, I have many many arguments with Guillermo del Toro about when to see monsters I think yeah. he's a good guy to have the largest. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> Guillermo's, a, Guillermo's very much just let's see the fucking monster. Yeah. And I'm kind of let's hold the monster off. Uh, but that, I bet, I imagine that tension yeah. is what makes that work. Yeah, it's great. It's really, it's really cool. good. It is good. Great. And uh, there's um, um, also uh, two things of interest to this particular podcast, I yeah. suppose. Working on an HBO show with Darren Aronofsky. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is kind of a, a very New York City show, which mm-hmm. is also scary. Interesting. Um, currently called Riverview, it might change its uh, it might change its time. And how are you working together? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, we're we're partners on this thing, really. I suppose he's going to direct the, the pilot. Mm-hmm. Is the idea, and uh, so that's in with HBO now. HBO really likes the script. Okay. Um, Darren really likes the script. Okay. And um, and also the other thing, which is kind of 
of current geek value is uh, I don't even know if you know the show, but I'm going. I'm planning to. It looks very much like I'm <laughs> going to uh, relaunch a show called Sapphire and Steel. I don't know that at all. Uh, Sapphire. I'm going to give you a DVD because I've got two copies by accident. Um, <laughs> Sapphire and Steel is a late seventies science fiction horror show, um, which had an incredibly low budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so every single episode was a bottle episode. Um, where the enemy is time itself. Um, Leakages of time, time folding in on itself. So it would tell ghost stories and monster stories, but in every episode, somehow, time was the villain. But it's not an anthology. No, no. Characters continue. Sapphire and Steel are the... um, They were kind of prototypical Mulder and Scully. Okay. Except they're probably aliens. Uh, it, it was very uh, the, the guy who wrote it his name I've, I've forgotten his name I can't believe it um, the guy who wrote it understood fan service before this became a thing and what he would do is drop hints about mythology um, but you kind of they're, they're clearly non-human mm-hmm. but maybe they're enhanced humans from the future maybe they are avatars of what's called the higher power who've temporarily taken human form um, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really fun. It's a great, uh, it's a great show, Sapphire. Oh, I'd love to see. If, uh, so you're just sort of getting rolling on that. Yeah, yeah. We just we just have the. We, there's a um, a broadcaster in the UK that's very very keen to do it. So nice. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a lot on your plate. There's a lot on the plate. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot. Um, have you tried writing comics? Do you know? I never have. I never have. I. Uh, would very much like to. It's one of the, but I think you need to find. I think one of the, one of the, one of the things that's made Alan Moore's career what it is, is he seemed to get lucky again and again and again with his collaborators. Mm-hmm. He always seemed to have a great relationship with his collaborators. Yeah. Well, it really is like working with an actor. Yeah, it's yeah. finding that right person yeah. to genuinely collaborate. And again, if, if you read Alan Moore's scripts, mm-hmm. insanely detailed. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, the from hell. I'm, I'm obsessed with From Hell because it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a work of near schizophrenic obsession. Absolutely. You know? uh, uh, but I think you would enjoy it. I think you would uh, enjoy the parameters. Oh, it's something I'd love to do. You something I would really love to do. I used to do it. I, when I was a kid, I used to do it on my own. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I had... Actually, that's how I got into writing novels. I just remembered. Yeah. I, used, I used to draw comics and I'd do the drawings first mm-hmm. and then I couldn't work out how to put the text boxes on without ruining my drawings. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I write the story first... Right. And then... <laughs> you were working in the old Marvel method. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right, yeah. That's very funny. Um, so we'll end, as we always do, by asking you, what are you watching these days? What are you watching on television? What movies are you watching? What's getting you excited or inspired? What comics are you reading? What books are you reading? I watch everything. Um, mm-hmm. New Zealand is a, is a tiny market, right? Um, so... It's also got a very uh, complicated rights situation mm-hmm. for these big multinationals. Sure. So we were, for instance, the last country in the English-speaking world to get the iTunes store. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only got Netflix in New Zealand yes. a few weeks ago. So currently, <laughs> uh, I'm like one of the apes at the beginning of 2001 with Netflix, kind of <laughs> worshipping at the altar. Um, I, I watch 
still quite a lot of 1970s television. Really? Because um, so much... They, they were working within such restricted parameters. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a, a British spy show called Callan, C-A-L-L-A-N, starring mm-hmm. Edward Woodward, hmm. was from the 70s, spectacularly bleak, and I think contains the single best television performance, certainly in Britain, of all time. Um, incredibly naturalistic, driven by rage... Um, the last thing I watched, I put off what I delayed and delayed and delayed, was Better Call Saul. Really? Um, because I couldn't imagine. I've met Vince Gilligan once, mm-hmm. very, very briefly, and was kind of, he's such a gentleman, that's, you know, <laughs> and was so kind to me that I was kind of burbling like a lower life for me. Of I, course. I, 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 was a, I was a fucking idiot, actually. I was an idiot. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but nevertheless, despite the you know the, the indisputable genius of Breaking Bad, which genuinely is indisputable, um, I thought there's no way, there's no way. So I put it off and I put it <laughs> off, and it's extraordinary. I think Better Call Saul is you know yeah. it, it more than stands on its own two feet. Yeah, you know, it, the, it, yeah, it's something. It's ambitious in these small ways oh, there's, there's that a, we should all aspire there's the, the penultimate episode uh, where, where, where Jimmy you know Bob mm-hmm. Odenkirk finds out that the reason he's not been employed at that firm oh. is because and honestly that broke my fucking heart I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach uh, and that, that's perfect television to me yeah. the, 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 the performance the writing just, and, and the way the reveal was made uh, you know yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Good answers. Um, thank you so much for taking this oh, time, especially you. with everything you're supposed to be working on. I really appreciate it. This was a pleasure. And welcome to Wellington. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 